Thanks so much for being with us. So we're going to talk a little bit now about animal law and looking forward to 2020, what might be the big stories of this year or what we should focus on when it comes to the rights of animals in this country. And joining me on the line is V. Victoria Schroff, an animal rights lawyer. We've talked on the program before. Thank you so much for being with us again. Pleasure, Jill. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, you've been practicing uh, animal law now, I think, for, for about 20 years in Vancouver. What do you think are, are the main accomplishments that we've made at this point when it comes to the protection of animals? Well, 2019, we had some highlights in Canada on animal law that I think were a long time coming. We um, had um, a ban on whales and dolphins in captivity. We closed off the bestiality loophole in the criminal code. And we also banned the importation and exportation of shark fins. Which all sound like uh, like good accomplishments. Yeah, those, those were good legislative con- um, you know, achievements that we ha- achieved. And there's still a lot of work to be done. But um, yes, that was actually... So that was all... All of those took place in June 2019. Um, but they had been years in the making. And where do you think we still need to do some work? Well, I think we have a lot of work to do around the idea of recognizing the intrinsic worth of animals rather than having them be um, objects or property under the law. And I think that's one of our biggest stumbling blocks that we have to start to work on and chip away at. Do you think we'll get there or is there enough momentum or do you think support to change that? I think we're getting there, and it depends on who you ask. Um, but I do think that there's um, scope definitely for doing this. Um, I'm seeing incremental change, for example, in areas like um, pet custody law, which is, at the moment, um, it's a formulation of ownership for who gets to keep the family pet upon dissolution of marriage or or a breakup. But Judges have also made comments towards the idea of a best interests of animal uh, test. So there are words out there that are changing that you wouldn't have seen 20 years ago when I first started practicing. Right. So so what is the, the issue with treating or using the word property for animals? I mean, as long as the intention is still is still there that to treat them well and that there's still law in place to make sure that happens, is the issue with calling them property? Well, it is, because you see what happens when something is property under under the law. It's a thing. It's it's an object to be used. There's, um, you know, it doesn't have the same worth under the law. The other problem with that is, is that animals wouldn't have standing, for example, and still don't, if they have um, a problem. Whereas a corporation is a person, a legal person under the law, but an animal isn't. So, I mean, no one's going to turn around and tell you that um, a corporation breeds and, um, you know, has all other um, aspects of, um, you know, personhood. But animals don't have that. So they cannot go to court because you need you need to have the privilege of going to court as a as a person. Right. And so moving them out of the property care category makes them have a whole cluster and bundle of rights. Would it would it complicate things though, or change things? In what if somebody was in a scenario where they had to decide whether or not to euthanize an animal? Would then the decision then no longer be with the person 
I, I would say owner, but then again, then that makes it the, the whole issue of property. But would it take mm-hmm. away the, the, the so-called, I guess, rights or the decision-making power of, of the human? I don't think so. I don't think so, because I think you'd probably be looking at more of a guardian situation. For example, children are still persons under the law. They can sue, but they don't sue themselves, right? They do it as a guardian ad litem, or they do it through their guardian. Um, Same thing with incapacitated adults um, who don't have the brain capacity to do things. They're still considered persons under the law. We don't treat them worse because they have an injury. Um, so animals, I mean, we're not talking about giving them the rights to marry and, <laughs> and to drive cars. We're just saying that they could have the right to, for example, go to court and say um, through their guardian, I'm being abused and this needs to stop. Um, so you'd see, you'd see that they'd have greater um, stand. They'd have, they'd have a sort of a, a presence in the court, which they don't have currently or under the law. But it would still be the guardian doing it. It's not like the animal is going to be standing up saying that. Correct. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to, the animal's not actually probably going to go to court. Um, You know, no, I'm not going to see that. That's not going to happen where you're going to have an elephant take the stand. Not likely. I would really like to cover that court case if that was going to happen, though. (laughs) Well, it almost almost did, but it hasn't yet. Um, Yes. Um, when we talk about animals, are, do you do you see a difference when we're talking about pets versus, say, livestock or animals in the wild? Yeah, well, I mean, we have actually um, other um, jurisdictions to draw on. For example, in Argentina, there was um, Sandra the orangutan. She was declared to be um, basically like a person, and she was freed from the zoo as a result, and she's now in Florida living in a sanctuary. So that's what personhood can look like in actuality. Um, and also a state in India called Uttarakhand, they have declared that all animals in their province are um, legal persons, juristic persons. So it, it, it can happen um, where, um, you know, if there's, a willingness on the part of the lawmakers and society to say this is what we want to do. Right. Yeah. You, you must get some pushback though, or people that hear that and say, "Well, wait a minute. The, the, yeah. Are we? Are we? Are we? Uh, not to you? Well, I'll use the pun. Is the elephant in the room? Not that they aren't people. They're animals. Right. Exactly. And we're not saying that they're actually people. To have personhood doesn't mean you have to be. Um, a human-like individual or be a person, what you have to, what you're saying is we're going to attach certain rights to you, whereas right now you don't have any rights because you are property. And I call it respirating property, a hunk of respirating property, um, because in effect, you're not really being treated like you're sentient when you're property. So there are cases where um, judges have referred to animals akin to a stereo. Um, when it talks to, when you're talking about, for example, replacement, or if there's been a veterinary malpractice case, there's a reason why your pet is only worth, um, you know, a few hundred dollars. Whereas you know how how much your dog is worth to you, right, Jill? I mean, right. It's your dog is priceless, and you, and you don't refer to your dog as it. Your dog has a name. Your dog, you know, has has at home. I've said this to you before on your show. At home. Animals are family, but in court and under the law, they're property. Absolutely. Uh, is there a, a 
concerned though if we go down down the road of of making them um a personhood or, or, or making this change. Uh, do you see a scenario though? Because there are people who are very much uh, against eating meat, against eating animals that could take it further saying, well, now that we've given them all of these rights, it's absolutely wrong to put them as part of the food chain. Yes, I can see that happening. Yeah, I How can d- see that. And, and a lot of people would argue that that's the right thing to be doing, that animals shouldn't be eaten, that, you know, we can grow meat in a lab, why are animals still being eaten, Um, particularly with some of the um, cruelty surrounding slaughter and transportation and the way farmed animals are treated. Um, There's some very, very cogent arguments to be made there. And I have no doubt there's a huge tide of opposition also waiting to be um, making pronouncements. Absolutely. Do you think that that's something that's going to come more to the forefront uh, as going ahead this year? I do. I really do. I think that um, you're going to see where people, I think as education grows and as people get exposed to how things go in slaughterhouses, for example, that people might want to choose to have less meat. Maybe not. I mean, but some might. Um, I think it was Paul McCartney that famously said that, you know, if um, slaughterhouses were made of glass, no one would be eating animals or something to that effect, you know, Um, which is not to say that it. It's cruelty all the time. I don't believe it is, but um, there are ways of doing slaughter that are a lot more humane than what we do currently. Um, and, and to afford animals some rights or protections under the law would mean that they would be treated better. And that's, that's my goal every day as an animal law lawyer and an animal law professor at um, UBC is that we're saying how do we make the lives of animals better? It's, it's going to be incremental. It's not going to be an overnight wholesale change, but we need to work on it. All right. Well, it's very, very interesting. We will leave it there, but thank you again. Always great to have you on the show talking about this. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you, Jill. All right, you're welcome too. That is V. Victoria Schroff, uh, one of the uh, first and longest serving animal law lawyers in Canada at uh, Schroff and Associates, also an adjunct professor at, of animal law at the Allard School of Law at UBC. Well, there has been plenty of conversation about what to do with Oppenheimer Park, especially now that uh, there was a homicide in the park. A man sorts through a pile of bikes Saturday. After logging Vancouver's first homicide of the year, Oppenheimer Park feels as lawless and as dangerous as ever. Devastating. Trisha Barker is one of two Vancouver Park Board commissioners who have fought to close down the camp and move residents to housing whether they want to or not. We had been worried that this was going to happen for months and months. A homicide or an accidental death from someone trying to stay warm have been the fears of people like Barker and Mayor Kennedy Stewart. But so far, they've been vetoed by the park board majority, who oppose an immediate closure and want a solution based on First Nations reconciliation. This is all part of our truth-telling and looking at our history and the colonial uh, relationship with our First Nations. All right, that was a report from Paul Johnson at Global News. He mentioned one of two commissioners working to clear that park of the tent camp. The other is John Cooper, who joins me on the line now. Commissioner, thank you so much for being with us. 
Good morning, Jill. What is your response when you hear that and hear from the chair of the board about why nothing can be done at this point to deal with what's happening in Oppenheimer Park? Well, first of all, I'd really like to uh, you know, express my condolences to uh, Mr. Cristobal Estevan's family and friends. And he was a much-loved uh, member of the community. He was not a resident of the park. Uh, he went down there to play basketball, and uh, he had been involved, I understand, over the years of doing some, uh, you know, teaching some courses within the facility there. So, you know, it's a really tragic event, and I... Uh, you know, it's it's something that we perhaps thought was coming, but certainly when it happens, it's 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 pretty shaky to people. Absolutely. What does it? Do you think, though, make it more urgent that something be done? Well, since last March, you know, March uh, when the park board started dealing with it, um, I've been calling for an injunction, as has uh, fellow commissioner uh, Trisha Barker. And this is not really our idea. This is a recommendation of the VPD, Vancouver Fire Rescue Services, our senior staff at the city, our park rangers, and our park board GM. And this new board, which is um, uh, COPE, uh, Green Majority, and there is a new commissioner, actually. uh, Stuart McKinnon is no longer the commissioner. We rotate usually every year, and the new chair is uh, uh, Camille DeMont, Commissioner Camille DeMont. They've been very reluctant uh, to take any action here. And in fact, in March of last year, they actually provided uh, more support. So it it sent a signal that it was going to be uh, acceptable, basically, for people to to camp there. Um, They went actually further, uh, you know, in in July when we actually called a special meeting to try and get an injunction to actually provide even more services uh, down there. So... It's unfortunate because there was, in July, there was, we had it down to about 30 tents and we had offered housing. The city and BC Housing did a tremendous job, um, had housing available for the folks down there. And uh, there was, you know, there was a hardcore group that didn't want to leave. And, and the next step should have been an injunction like there was in 2014, which was successful. Successful, but obviously not uh, for a permanent amount of time, because here we are at 2020 and the camp is as big as ever. Right, but it was successful for almost five years. You know, we were able to um, get services back into the park and uh, get get the park clean and safe for everybody. And and the community uses that park. I mean, we're in a, that's a very um, park deficient area of the city. And um, as you know, as the gentleman who lost his life, he was one who used that park. And and um, you know, people are now you know not using the park for its intended use. And 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 you know, we're, we're park commissioners. We're not the Department of Housing. This is. Um, I just think we need to take a stronger stand here. And, and I would. I hope that the new chair will call for uh, quicker action and an injunction. Uh, will it go on indefinitely then if that doesn't happen? Well, the jurisdiction is clear. Um, it is the, the park board's decision to make. And I, I think that the the board, you know, it is most of the commissioners that are on with the exception of um, myself and Commissioner McKinnon, our new commissioners. Um, you know, there is a, I think there's a fiduciary duty to, to ensure public safety. It, it's our responsibility. And, you know, the, the, the difficult part for me is I really believe a lot in the institution at the park board. You know, this is my third term um, and I, I see a lot of great work. And you look at the history of the park board over 140 years and it's done some fantastic things for our city. And this, I think, is really causing people to be concerned about the direction of this board.
Well, and like you said, the park board's jurisdiction is parks. It's not housing. It's not finding right. housing. It's not, it's, it doesn't extend to that. Uh, but here we had a board that in December decided that, uh, yes, we could get an injunction, but there would be very stringent conditions. And bringing in a third party, do we really need a third party to figure out that what's happening there is not good? Well, I did support that only because it did talk about an injunction at some point, And I believe that ultimately is going to be needed. So in my opinion, I think this should cause the board to take action. I mean, you know, you just can't allow an unsafe situation like that. You heard from the report you quoted earlier that um, it certainly is unsafe. And our professional staff are telling us it's unsafe. The VPD are telling us that's unsafe. You know, uh, what will it take? We had a, we had some fires in December the 7th, number of, of tents. And, and, you know, luckily there wasn't a, a, an injury there. You know, we had a shooting on December the 13th. Clearly, clearly it's time for action. So at what point then does it take a change of direction from the park board? Does it take that to to go ahead with the injunction to get that even started? Well, we've seen we've certainly seen that movement. We've seen, you know, the talk of of moving to an injunction. I just hope that this something that something good can come out of this tragic situation and and you know, the other commissioners will move to some, you know, action here. Um, you know, I just, it's almost beyond belief that we're in a situation where this has been, this has gone on for a year um, and these incidents continue to escalate. Um, you know, we've had people, um, you know, digging underground and tapping into underground electrical cables. I mean, that, you know, the, the safety issues are huge. And, and our job should really be to ensure clean and safe parks across the city for everybody. And that's that's the role, should be a role of, of, of park commissioners. And, and certainly that's a role that I'm trying to fulfill. Uh, even with an injunction, it doesn't sound like many uh, or some, at least part of the people, the part of the community there uh, will leave. I mean, yesterday, one of the spokespeople, Chrissy Brett, uh, told Global News, when there's a shooting in Surrey, you don't shut down the neighborhood just because there's been a homicide in this park. It doesn't mean our neighborhood should be shut down. It seems like no matter what, any movement to move people out is going to be met with opposition. Right. And, um, you know, Chrissy has been involved in a number of these uh, events. She was, she was involved in a, in a similar situation on Vancouver Island where uh, she, was, she was basically the de facto leader of the group. Um, you, know, there, there's, you know, there's a strong uh, group there that, that wants to say, but we, we are, you know, um, we do have some tools in the toolbox, and one of those is an injunction. In the, in the past, it has worked, but we have to give... Uh, the authority of the appropriate agencies to make that happen. And right now, this situation is just untenable. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. John Cooper, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. A few weeks ago on the program, we were talking about the plans for a new park in downtown Vancouver and talking about how it looked a lot different than what you might picture when someone says new park. You might picture a grass field, maybe a gazebo, maybe a place to play sports. Uh, This uh, park, though, has a lot of different levels. It's got hard surfaces, water features, a cafe, a little different. So let's have the bigger conversation. What is the purpose of park space? So what is the need or what do we need from our parks? And joining me to talk a little bit about this is Susan Harrington, Professor in Landscape Architecture at UBC. Susan, thank you so much for being with us. 
Hi, thank you, Jill. Uh, it, it does get people questioning or thinking, I suppose, on a more broad sense on the purpose of park space and, and what we use it, I guess, best uses for it. What do you think about this kind of shift when we're talking about urban parks? And they're not just grass fields anymore. They're these, these multi-level, uh, very intricate designs. Um, yeah, I think that's just responding to the needs of the growing community. And um, we've become so dense, particularly in the downtown core, in terms of people living downtown, that we need, you know, spaces that are going to address multiple needs and abilities. Um, and also places for people to actually socialize and get to know each other as neighbors. And, and that's an interesting one. So is, what do you think is the main purpose of a park? Um, I think to provide open space. Um, a place where you could um, relax, play, uh, interact with others. Um, you know, they're, they're really diverse, the parks. Some of the early parks we had in North America were really for strolling and looking at views and taking in the scenery. So if you think of Central Park, and I think you know, Stanley Park very much falls into that. But as the 20th century developed, we got all different types of parks, depending on where they're located, and all different sizes. So particularly when we think of the, these, these smaller urban parks, uh, you're going to find that they're going to have a lot more going on um, than just greenery and scenes. Absolutely. Uh, do you think is it is it necessary for a park to have structures or to have things in it that prompt conversations or get people talking? I think it's a good thing. I think, um, you know, this is a very old theory called triangulation, which was developed by William White, who thought, you know, if you see something kind of unusual in a public space, you are more likely to talk to someone who you might never talk to. And that's the way we start to talk to one another and communicate with each other. And I think it's more important now than ever because we are so sucked into our phones and other digital devices that even when you go to a public space now, many people are sitting there looking at their phones and not socializing. And um, we know that the city has a growing loneliness problem. And I think if we have ways that we can prompt conversations between people, whether it's positive or negative or if they like what they see, uh, it's, it's a way of uh, communicating with each other. And, and what if you're one of the people that just wants to go there and sit and mind your own business? Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, parks where you can do that. Uh, a, a place where I see people do that often is the benches along the seawall. Uh, here in the West End, you'll see people chilling out and looking out at the water. Um, and I think there's, there's definitely places for that. Um, but I do think it's, a, it's, it's also a, a space where we can start to connect to each other uh, as a community. And we talk a lot about um, weather, and uh, I mentioned it even uh, just a few moments ago that it's a bit of a soggy Sunday out there today. How does that factor in, particularly for Vancouver, where we do get a lot of rain? Does that does that play a role when designing something? Um, do, do, I, I would imagine you have to think about it going, well, this might look nice when it's dry, but then it's going to mm-hmm. be a mud pit, and that's just going to be a disaster. How, how, how important is that in designing it? Yeah, it's it's very important, and I think, you know, we tend to still go out when it's raining, just because I think if you've lived here, I've lived here for 20 years now, that uh, you, you tend to <laughs> go out uh, regardless, particularly if you have to walk your dog, or um, you still tend to use it, but it's definitely a huge consideration of any outdoor space is the weather. Um, but we're also really lucky because we can use the weather pretty much 
all year long. Where other parts of Canada, you know, it's it's just too cold often to go outside. Yeah, I saw people yesterday. I was con- I was thinking uh, in Vancouver. I, it must be one of the few places where you constantly see people in shorts and flip flops, even when it's January fourth and, and it's yes. not that warm outside. <laughs> Um, one of the ones, this was making me think about the plaza, and, and it's just downstairs from where we are right now or where I am. And the plaza, I, I remember it being quite controversial when the plaza at the art gallery went from being a green space, a yard space, to the plaza that's there now, which is completely paved and it's got benches. It's quite beautiful, but very, very different. How much of a challenge mm. is that kind of getting the public on side with paving over? Because it seems to go against uh, so many things. Um, I think, you know, really that that park, um, the the plaza space that's outside of the art gallery there is, it was really designed with the intent that it would accept programming. And when you have programming, which again is another way of of bringing people together, creating that triangulation, whether it's a food truck fair or clogging or, you know, yoga or something happening in that event, that you need that kind of hard space that when there isn't something going along, yes, can look kind of empty. Um, but um, I think they tried to work with not just, you know, with the paving pattern to give some interest to it. Um, but it's just, again, it shows the kind of diversity that parks play in our city. Um, and so then that's very different than the park that we were talking about previously, um, where there's a lot going on. And um, the, the program is, is really built in and is part of the, of the park itself. Right, because the the new park, the one that's being built uh, at Smythe and uh, Richards, yes. um, it's going to have, because it, it almost is, is it's this multi-level design and it's got so much. And I, I was really pleased when I saw the designs for it that it's going to be accessible to everybody, that if you're in a wheelchair, you can still go to every part of the park. And is that, are we paying more attention to that now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's been a huge... Um, movement, particularly with the Rick Hansen Foundation, to, to make our parks and playgrounds more accessible to all modes of mobility. Um, and we also have a, you know increasing aging population that often have to rely on different modes of, of uh, movement and transport. So I think that's a really good step in the right direction. Um, and yeah, you don't see all the grass that you would see in these traditional kind of Vancouver neighborhood parks. Um, and that's really because of its its location. Do you think we have enough park space in Metro Vancouver? Um, no, I think we could probably use some more. <laughs> we, you know, we have the, the seawall, which is a great linear space. But I think, you know, there's certainly places where I think we could probably use some more park space, particularly for children, because right. we have increasingly families living in our city. And they really need the open space to run, to exercise, to socialize. Um, and um, I think that's, I think the more we can create, I think the better. I think the city's trying to do that with recent developments and having open spaces that are contingent upon that development. I think that's great. But, and interesting that you say that, because do you think this new park is family friendly or are we going to see families and kids running around in there? From what I can see from the illustrations, yeah, I think definitely it'll be, I think it'll be an attractor. And um, I think there's some, also some unusual things that the designers have placed in there that'll probably prompt some conversations among people using the park. 
Do you think as well, I mean, we see uh, innovation in other cities as well when it comes to park space. Do we, do we, use, uh, do we use it to our potential or our potential when you look out, uh, and again, from, I'm on the 21st floor, so I look out over a bunch of rooftops right now. Do we use enough space or think about space, elevated parks, rooftops, that kind of thing when looking for green space or park space? Yeah, I mean, I know there's a concerted effort um, by the city to create more rooftop green spaces, and I have colleagues who specialize in that that development. And I think that's, um, I mean, the rooftops, um, if you think of Library Square, Cornelia Hahn Oberlander designed a, a rooftop garden there um, just two years ago. And, um, you know, it's a, a beautiful space where you could go out kind of level in the city and look at views and it's got tons of plants and it's accessible. And I think that's a wonderful um, model for the direction we should be going. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. We are out of time. Uh, Professor Harrington, thank you so much, though, for joining us uh, to talk about this today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. So, well, we've gotten past the shortest day of the year, the one with the smallest amount of light. However, we are still in that type of weather pattern where it gets dark early, it's rainy, the roads are glistening. It can be difficult to see. If you have trouble seeing the lines on the road, fear not, you are not the only one. Other people are also raising concerns about this and wondering if something can be done to make them a little bit more visible. Well, Jody Vance, who is a host here on CKNW and also a contributor at the Orca, has written about this and joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about it. Jody, thanks for being on the show. Good morning, Jill. Uh, you wrote about this on January 2nd, about a, cl- a close call that you had. What happened? Well, I was actually attending a charity event down in the downtown east side early in the evening, um, driving home around 7.30, and it was pitch black as though it was midnight because it was the Tuesday before Christmas. And I was just doing the speed limit, driving westbound uh, along Cornwall, and a gentleman driving a big car, I saw his face flash before my eyes, I'll never forget it now, uh, was pulling out onto Cornwall thinking that those of us traveling westbound were in the center lane, not the curb lane. I was driving in the curb lane, and I had never needed to slam my brakes on that urgently and and with such force as this particular incident. And, Joe, I I came a centimeter away from hitting this man um, as he tried to just pull out into the the lane that he thought was the clear lane. Um, And then there were three other cars around me that I, you know, braced myself for them to hit me and everybody screeched to a stop and just, I don't know what, by force field of some sort, we all didn't hit one another, but had that moment where our hearts were in our throats and we just kind of looked at one another and then drove off. And I thought, God, we just couldn't see the lines on the road because they were like, the, as you said, the road was shiny as well as the shiny uh, stripes down the road, which we're used to in, in, in the summer and springtime and even the fall for that matter but deep in winter you just can't see them and I thought wow is that my eyesight I wear glasses it's my astigmatism or was it blurry for me Um, could this have been my fault and then I saw on Twitter Carm Sumal from the Daily Hive had written something similar about come on like why aren't they reflective and I thought well I'm not alone. So maybe maybe we can work together and ask for some reflective paint on the on the streets so we can avoid this such thing. 
I do wonder, though, if it's, I mean, maybe it's a mix because I think inherently there just are some really bad drivers. And I don't know if seeing the lines on the road would fix that or if people would still just make poor decisions when driving. Oh, I'm, I'm certain there are very bad drivers. <laughs> I, I know a couple of them and call them very good friends. Uh, it just felt like this particular situation, it just seemed like a lane mistake. So maybe a bad driver who should have been able from his stop position have seen that he was pulling out into active traffic in an active lane. But there have been a couple in these rainy last Pineapple Express that we've uh, experienced, even coming down Burrard Street on my way into CKNW at, you know, 10 a.m., which kind of looked like 7.30, you know, dusk uh, and pouring rain. People are sort of moving from from lane to lane without realizing it or recognizing it. I have the lane um, indicator beep on my car, and uh, I've, I've used it a number of times, I have to admit. Yeah, and I mean, there. I don't know if you see this, but I see people doing that all the time too, and not signaling. Which again, I've floating, <laughs> just floating around and uh, feeling like they're the only ones on the road. Um, you talked about this in the in the piece that you wrote as well that the reflective paint uh, isn't probably isn't the greenest, the most environmentally friendly, but there needs to be uh, some balance there, I suppose, that people need to see where they're going. And that's why I call my column the middle, because that's what I'm looking for is trying to not just say it's bad here. Or we need the greenest paint. Uh, I'd like it to be somewhere in the middle and go, okay, there are certain things that we absolutely should be environmentally aware about. I'm not sure that the, the reflective paint on the asphalt should, should be high on our list of things to try and find that are super green. Um, because there is reflective paint around most of our bike lanes that are, are in and around uh, the downtown core, at least. So... Why not use that as the stripe down the center of of the roadway? So it's just it's more so to spark the conversation uh, and try and ask the city to not do a study on the type of paint, but actually find the reflective one and use it as soon as possible so that we can see in the dark and in the rain. It, it, it seems kind of simple. It was kind of an open letter to City Hall in that regard. And I'm guessing you haven't heard back from City Hall. Not at this time. No, but we're going to keep banging the drum because we decided instead of we on Twitter, the grand we, um, just decided that maybe if we got a little bit vocal about this in in a positive way, um, maybe we could enact some change because sometimes City Hall does listen. That is uh, very, very true. And we'll have to check and see uh, if Karm Sumal, who tweeted, uh, as you mentioned, tweeted at the city of Vancouver, if uh, he's gotten any response as well. Ooh, that's a good idea. I should check in with them. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's something that will likely resonate with people. Uh, I'm going to put the call out to our listeners. Jody, thank you so much for joining us at uh, talking about this today. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Jill. Have a good one.